You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to John 17, verse 24. We'll be in a couple passages this morning, but we will end up in uh, John 17, verse 24. So as you're turning there, uh, if you're new, if you're visiting us this morning, welcome to Citizens Church. My name's Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're thrilled that you chose to worship with us. If you're watching online, whether you're doing that for the first time, or maybe you've been doing that for a long time, welcome. Thank you for worshiping with us. Uh, We are uh, taking a break over the summer from our Wisdom series. Uh, We've been in a series on wisdom for about four months now, and in those four months, we've really laid a foundation uh, that, that we need to be able to talk about wisdom and apply it to different areas of our lives. And having laid that foundation, we're now going to take a break for the summer, uh, mostly because I just need time to prepare. I think God wants us to be uh, in wisdom for a long time, longer than what I had even planned. So we'll definitely be in it for the fall, maybe even for the spring. And uh, I lack wisdom, and I need wisdom to know where to go uh, from here. And wisdom has a pace, if you remember. It's slow. And so we're not in a hurry. Uh, We're going to press pause. We'll pick it back up in August. Here's what we're going to do over the summer. Over the summer, we're going to walk through um, our church's beliefs. And by our church's beliefs, I mean the church's beliefs. These are not uh, original to Citizens Church. These are the core doctrines that really define what makes Christianity Christianity. These are core beliefs that are held by all Orthodox churches and all faithful Christians Uh, for 2,000 years all around the world. And they answer really important questions like, who is God? And how do you know God? And what's wrong with the world? And what's humanity? And where's this all going? And what's a church? And, And for centuries, the church has held out these answers to those questions and said things like God's a trinity and humanity is made in God's image and what's wrong with the world is sin and salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And so we're going to walk through uh, those beliefs over eight or nine weeks this summer. If you remember back to our belonging series, we're calling this series belonging as well. Back in the fall, belonging was about our values and how what it means to belong to citizens means sharing these values. This summer, belonging is about these beliefs and what it means to belong to our church and really to the church is by holding these shared beliefs. So this morning, we'll begin talking about the doctrine of God. Who is God? Uh, what does the Bible reveal about God? Before we do that, I just want to name two hopes I have for this series over the summer. Um, I know summer's a busy time. Summer's a really uh, church and attending church can be kind of choppy in the summer. You're probably gone a lot this summer. I'm gone a lot this summer. But if you can find a way to stay connected, uh, here are a few hopes I have. Beyond just teaching, maybe you're a young Christian, a new Christian, and you want to know what Christianity believes, then, then beyond just teaching that, a couple hopes would be one, unity, that, that as we consider these core doctrines of the Christian faith, it would have a way of unifying us, not just us here in this church, but unifying us to the church, unifying us to uh, the church across denominations and across continents and countries. I think, if you'll hear me, one of the schemes of the enemy uh, is to isolate Christians and to get you and to get me to believe that we're all alone, that, that, that we are the only ones who believe what we believe. And part of that, especially now, is getting us to have a really small view of who's a Christian and who's not a Christian, or who's part of a real church and who's not, right? And to get us to shrink the family of God around our experiences, 
and shrink the family of God around our preferences or to shrink the family of God around our non-essential, secondary or tertiary convictions. And it's, it's not just the essential doctrines that like constitute what it means to be orthodox, but the only real Christians are the Christians who believe like I do about everything. And if that's what I believe, that the only Christians are the ones who believe like I do and prefer like I do about everything, that's going to make me feel really alone. Because that's going to give me a really small view of the church. It's going to give me a really small view of, of who's a Christian and who's not a Christian. But if I look at these core doctrines that we'll look at this summer, and I ask who believes these, that's a really big family. It's a really big family. Uh, that family is made up of people who disagree with me on a lot of things, on, on a lot of really important things. But we have unity in the essential things. We have unity in the foundational truths of the faith. We're eating dinner the other night, and my kids were talking about some of their friends um, who live across the street. And they said that they sometimes go to Christchurch. You know Christchurch? It's this huge Anglican church right across the street from us. And my son said, uh, my, my daughter asked, is it a good church? And I said, yeah, it's a great church. And my son said, well, what's different about them? They're Anglican. What do they believe different from us? And so we talked about it. They believe differently about baptism, and they believe differently about kind of church structure and polity, and they believe differently about communion, and, and they probably emphasize things that we don't emphasize, and we probably emphasize things that they do emphasize. And my daughter stopped me, and she said, okay, who's better? <laughs> and my son said, well, they do have more parking than we do, <laughs> which is true, they do. By the way, if you park across the street, stay out of their parking lot, do it in front of them. And I said, hey, it's not about better. It's just not about better. And then I started to list to them all the things that we agree on with the people across the street. We agree on who God is. We agree that salvation is through Christ alone, by faith alone. We agree that Jesus died and rose again and is one day returning to make all things right. We agree that God's word is the first and final authority in the life of the believer and in the life of the church. And what I just want for them, my children, and what I want for us, my church, is to know that we are part of a historic faith that boasts in the best way a really large family that doesn't agree on everything but agrees on the most important things. And so it's not about better, friends. It's about knowing that every Sunday that we do this, across the street, hundreds of brothers and sisters in Christ gather together to worship the same God and hope in the same Savior. Every Sunday that we do this, thousands upon thousands of brothers and sisters in Christ across the world gather together to worship the same God and to hope in the same Savior. And how do we know that they are our brothers and sisters? Because we are united in these shared essential beliefs together. And that kind of unity around our essentials comes with it the confidence that Jesus is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail, and we are not alone in believing what we believe. The second hope would be this, worship. That we would respond to what we learn or that we would respond to what we remember that we've already learned in um, a growing affection and adoration for God. Now, I have no control over this, like most things. I have no control over whether this happens or whether it doesn't, but uh, I just believe that we can't, if we're truly believers, if we belong to God, I just believe that we cannot over and again consider who this God is and what this God has done, and for that to fall flat in your soul. I just don't think it's possible. And for many of us, what our problem is, is our problem is not about denial of God. Our problem is more about apathy towards God. 
Derek Kidner says it like this. He's a theologian. He says, he describes it as a thoughtless attitude towards a God whose existence is unquestioned but unappreciated. There's something that has bothered me about my own heart, and there's something that puzzles me about our hearts, if, if this is true about you. But it's this thing where we are easily excited about things that are trivial and largely unresponsive to things that are eternal. And what I'm praying happens again, or maybe for the first time, is as we consider these foundational truths about Christianity and about God, that something of those truths fall from our heads down into our hearts and they fuel a life of worship and, and service and love and kindness and enjoyment of God. I want David's heart. Psalm 27, one thing I ask, one thing I seek, to inquire in God's temple, to be with him, to gaze on his beauty. And what David believes is he has this confidence that the more time I spend with God, the more I discover about God, the more my affection for him and my adoration for him and my delight in his beauty will just grow and grow. And I want that kind of single-minded desire for God, don't you? Those are the hopes. We'll start this morning with the doctrine of God. Entire books have been written, volumes and volumes of books have been written to this issue that we're going to try to cover in about 25 minutes now. So we won't come close to saying all that there is to say, but I do think that, that what we will say is the starting place for talking about God. And I just want to thread, I really want us to consider this together. I just want to thread a simple question throughout all of our time. And here's the simple question. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Three passages that will guide our time. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. This is Jesus' baptism. It teaches us something important about God. Verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Matthew 28, 19 this is Jesus speaking, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. John 17, Kim read this for us before her beautiful prayer. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Hold on to this. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So we honored our seniors this morning. Most of you were in here for that. And so think about this with me. Uh, those of you who are seniors and you're going off to college, maybe you're staying in a dorm, which likely means you'll get a roommate. And, and like many of us, when we went to college, you just kind of get a random roommate that's assigned to you. And if that's you, you're probably right now thinking about that and hoping that some things are true about that roommate, right? You're hoping that they're kind. Uh, you're hoping that you have similar interests. You're hoping that they don't snore. You're hoping that they like good music, right? And, and likely what you're hoping is you're hoping that they love the Lord like you do. You're hoping that they believe about God like you do. And so let's say we go a couple months into August and you're wherever you're going and let's say you meet your roommate on the first day and you move your stuff in and your mom cries and your parents leave and then it's just you and your roommate sitting there together and you're getting to know each other and you're asking each other questions. And you work up the courage to ask them, hey, it's okay if you do, but um, do you snore? And they're like, no, I don't. And you're like, praise God. That's going to make things so much easier. And then you say, hey, what, you know, what kind of music do you like? And they say, country. And you're like, oh, no. 
But it's okay. You can work on that, right? People change. Um, and you want to know eventually what do they believe? The most important question. And so you ask them, hey, do you believe in God? And if they say no, then there's a good idea that you, you know what that means. They're either, like maybe they're an atheist and they say there is no God. Or maybe they'd say I'm a secular humanist, which is someone who denies God's existence but still holds people to moral standards that only matter if God exists. That's a whole other sermon for another day. <laughs> That's if they say no. But what if they say yes? Hey, do you believe in God? Yeah, I do. What does that mean about them? What have you learned about them in their yes? Well, it depends, right? Like, it depends on how they define that God. Here's my point. The word God right now has such a range of meaning that two people can say, I believe in God, and they believe two completely different things. They're not talking about the same God. They're not talking about the same faith. Like the roommate could say, I believe in God, but by that they mean I believe in an intelligent being that created the world, but is uninvolved in that world, like a watchmaker that made a watch and now just watches the watch tick. Well, that's the God of deism. They could say, I believe in God, and by that they believe the God is one person who has no son, who has given five pillars through which our good deeds maybe can outweigh our bad. Well, that's the God of Islam. Yes, I believe in God, and that God is a spirit that's in everything. And when I put good energy out into the world, I commune with the divine that's in all things. Well, that's some version of the God of Eastern mysticism. Yes, I believe in God, and if I have enough faith, that God will protect me from all pain and make me super rich. Well, that's the God of the prosperity gospel. Yes, I believe in God, and that God is an American who hates all of my political enemies and who wants me to be discipled by the news. And his plans for the world orient around returning America to the version that I think is best. That's the God of Christian nationalism. Yes, I believe in God, and that God never disagrees with me. That God affirms all my desires. And who God is to me doesn't necessarily need to be who God is to you, religion's relative. That's the God that a secular world creates. That's a God that we fashion after our own image. Yes, I believe in God, and that God is like a cruel judge and I live my life under his gavel, and the more afraid I am of him, the more pleased he is in me. That's the God of graceless fundamental religion. Who is God? Is God, for you, any of those descriptions? Now, I get that those examples represent different degrees of distortion, for sure, but all of those fall short in some way or distort in some way the Christian God. Look, I, I know... Um, I know that if the question is, this is really unpopular to believe right now, but if the question is who is God, we need to know that there are a lot of wrong answers. There are a lot of wrong answers. That has to be true because people are saying things about God that can't all be true at the same time. Here's my question. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in the one true God? Do you believe in the Christian God? Maybe to, to dig into that, because I think it'd be easy to answer that like a, like a question on a test. But to dig into that question with a quote from A.W. Tozer, he has a famous line where he says this, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So friends, what do you think about when you think about God right now? 
The three passages we read in Matthew and and John are essential to understanding the nature of this God, who the Christian God is, who the Bible reveals God to be. From these passages and others, we can offer a definition of God. This is a historic Christian definition of God. This specific one is from Tim Keller because his wording, as always, is helpful. But here's who God is according to the Bible and according to the church throughout centuries. God is one being, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equally God, who know and love one another. That's who God is. That's the Christian God. God is one being, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equally God, who know and love one another. Is this the God that you believe in? Is this the God you think about when you think about God? And and I just want to stay there and just dig in just a bit. Let's unpack that identity of God by spending all of our time with two words. The two words are Trinity and love. God is Trinity and God is love. One of those words is all over your Bible and one of those words is not in your Bible even once. You know which one's not in your Bible? Trinity. Love is all over your Bible, but you will not find anywhere in your Bible the word Trinity. Trinity is a word that we use as Christians starting about a couple hundred years after Jesus. The church started using that word to describe God. It's not a word that God uses to describe himself, but it's a really important word, and it's the word that best captures the whole scope of the Bible's teaching about the identity of God. Namely, it's the one that captures this really mysterious, really challenging, really important truth that God is one God, not multiple gods, but three persons, one being eternally existing in three persons. So you see that in passages like Jesus' baptism. Immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And behold, a voice, God the Father from heaven, said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And so you have three persons present, all God. The Spirit's descending, the Father's speaking, the Son's receiving, three distinct persons, but one God. Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's a divine claim. And then he's going to commission his disciples into the world in the divine name. And so he lists the divine name. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. That's who God is. Now, here's usually what happens when we think about the Trinity, if you've thought about it at all. We immediately struggle with bad math And then we try to reconcile that bad math with bad analogies. It's just how it often works for me. Like something can be both one and three, right? That's bad math. But the Bible says about God that God is one. Deuteronomy 6, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 46, 9, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's none like me. And so God is one and God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, all described and defined in ways that could only be true about God. From Old Testament to New Testament, God's described as a father. Uh, The spirit is present as God on the very first pages of the Bible. The son is described as God in John 1 and Colossians 1 and Philippians 2 and Hebrews 1, just to name the most popular. So it's one being eternally existing in three persons. And we hear that or hear about the Trinity and it's like, okay, that's confusing. How do we make sense of it? How do we make it all fit together? And so the reaction often is to try to compare it to something that just falls short of capturing God's greatness. And also it falls short of accuracy sometimes. And so we'll take an analogy like maybe you've heard it's like water. And water can take three different forms, ice or liquid or gas, but it's all water. And God's kind of like that. A few years ago, I was talking about the Trinity with my son and my daughter. And I was trying to explain, and I knew better than to do this because this is the worst one, but 
uh, I said, it's like an egg. God's like an egg. Uh, and I was just trying to, to, to make it make sense. And he's like, you know, egg is, there's a shell, and that's the egg, and there's the white, and that's the egg, and there's the yolk, and that's the egg. It's, it's all egg, but three different parts of the egg. And I look at my daughter, and her face is super sad, and she's allergic to eggs. <laughs> and I said, honey, what's wrong? And she said, I'm allergic to God. <laughs> and because if God's like an egg, then that's how our little mind processes it. I must be allergic to God. And that's the problem. And I understand the, the desires to just try to make sense of it and compare it to something. And there's nothing entirely wrong with that. But when we try and explain something as magnificent and as weighty as the Trinity, no matter what example we use, whatever illustrations we come up with, we lose something of reverence for God. We lose something even of, of accuracy when speaking about God. And, and I understand that this is probably not a room full of people who are giving a ton of mental and emotional energy trying to make sense of the Trinity. You probably didn't think of it when you first woke up. It's probably not the last thing you think about when you go to sleep. But there is a chance that if you've thought about it at all, it has only been around its confusion, which means we miss something. If you've thought about it at all, it's only been about, oh, that's, you know, I don't really know what to do with that, and so we just kind of avoid it. My experience with the Trinity for so long was just to quote this old theologian who said about it, if you deny it, you'll lose your soul. If you try to understand it, you'll lose your mind. And it's like, okay, well, you just throw up your hands and say, God's a trinity. I believe it. I don't really know how to make sense of it, and I can't really explain it. And friends, the biggest miss with that is that's not the way the Bible responds to God being a trinity. Like, it seems that God, according to his own revelation about himself, is wonderful and magnificent and beautiful, not in spite of being a trinity, but because he's triune. Like, and, and, and let me say it another way. The trinity is not a problem to solve. It's a truth to rejoice in. Michael Reeves wrote a book on the trinity called Delighting in the Trinity. You really should read it. It's incredible. If you don't want to read it, he has a couple lectures online, and he's uh, English and has this great English accent, so he's really easy to listen to. But he says this about the Trinity in the book. For what makes Christianity absolutely distinct is the identity of our God. The bedrock of our faith is nothing less than God himself. And every aspect of the gospel, creation, revelation, salvation, is only Christian insofar as it is the creation, revelation, and salvation of this God the triune God. Because the Christian God is triune, the Trinity is the governing center of all Christian belief, the truth that shapes and beautifies all others. God being triune tells us something of the identity of God, not to make our minds hurt, but to make our hearts rejoice, to make our souls long to know more. As Reeves said, God is triune, and that truth shapes and beautifies all other truths. It, literally, everything we say as Christians start by first saying this about the nature and identity of God. You know why the Bible's beautiful? Because it reveals the triune God. You know why creation's good? Because it came from the hands of a triune God. You know why salvation is precious? Because it reconciles us to a triune God. It, why the new heavens and the new earth? You know why it's our great hope in life and in death? Because it brings us into everlasting, intimate communion with and worship of a triune God. God is triune. It's not a problem to solve. It's a truth to rejoice in. Because at the very heart of the Trinity is our other word. God is love. And friends, he can only be uniquely love in the way he is because he's triune. 
because God's trying, there is an object, there is divine love in the triune personhood because there is personhood to God. Michael Reeves makes it more simple than that, and he just asks a question. He says, what was God doing before creation? And how you answer the question what God was doing before creation is going to dramatically shape your view and your thoughts about the identity of God. What was true about God before he was creator, before he was ruler, before anything else came to be but God? And Jesus tells us in John 17, verse 24, he's talking to his father. He has just taught his followers, preparing them to live in the world without him. He's on the cusp of being arrested and beaten and crucified. And he prays to the father and he says this, Father, I desire that they also, that's us, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you, what? Loved me before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before creation, according to Jesus? What has God always been doing forever and ever? Loving. The Father loving the Son and the Spirit. The Son loving the Spirit and the Father. The Spirit loving the Father and the Son. What has always been true is God has always been one being eternally existing in three persons. And what that God has always been doing is loving. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world, Jesus says. Hey, think about something with me. How different is life and God in relationship with God if it says something else? Like if instead of because you loved me before the foundation of the world, Jesus speaks to God and says because you were lonely before the foundation of the world. If before God created, if what he was doing was uh, missing what he doesn't have, if what he was feeling was loneliness, then that means that he creates out of his need. And if he creates out of his need, then that puts the burden on you and on creation and on me to somehow fix a needy God. If before creation, God was needy and he created to fix his loneliness, this is what ancient religions believed about the gods, that they were insecure and unpredictable, so you never know what they want or what they need. And if that was true about God, then everything that came after that moment of God being needy is in response to trying to meet something or fix something in God. Do you, look right at me, do you believe in that God? Think about it. <laughs> Have you ever done religious things? read your Bible, come to church, pray, worship, and you're doing it for the purpose of somehow pleasing God or doing something for God and so that God will do something for you. Like it does something for God and that'll ultimately mean that God does something to make your life better. And is there not a lie underneath that that I am doing something for God so that God does something for me and it assumes that he needs something that I can offer? The holy eternal God is in, in need of me offering him something or doing something for that God that might turn out good for me. Do you believe in that God? What if Jesus prays and he says this, instead of uh, because you loved me before the foundation of the world, because you were angry before the foundation of the world, and out of that anger God creates that he might have a means to manage his anger, and so he fills his world with objects of his wrath and that places the burden, the really terrifying burden on you and on me of having to make sure that we live in a way that avoids God's explosive, unpredictable anger. And the best that we can hope for is keeping God's anger from getting to this boiling point of spilling out onto us. Do you believe in that, God? Um, how many of us, if we were to reverse Tozer's question, Tozer basically says what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What if we were to ask, what does God think about when he thinks about you? 
What does he think about right now, thinking about you? And I wonder how many of us, when we think about that, the words that come to mind are, oh, he's frustrated, he's disappointed, he's apathetic, he's furious. Maybe even some of us would say he's disgusted with me. Well, that sounds like a God who before anything was made was angry. Before the foundation of the world, he's just angry and furious. Do you believe in that God? The good news that Jesus reveals to us about God is that before the foundation of the world, before anything was made, God was not eternally needy. God was not eternally angry. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit was, is, and always will be eternally loving. According to God the Son, before God ever created, before he was ever ruler, before anything else, God was a father loving his son, Jesus says. And if God is love, if he's triune love, and he created not out of need, and he created not out of anger, but he created out of love, and all that exists, including you, exists because he first was love, you know why you exist? To share in that love. The greatest hope you could have in your life is to somehow be a recipient of and a participant in the triune love that's always been and always will be. And Jesus says that's exactly what God delights in doing. I desire that they also whom you have given me, his present and future believers, which is us, his followers, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus, God the Son, speaks to God the Father and reveals the divine heart. I want these men and women who follow me now and who will follow me in the future to share in the love that we've had forever and always. And then what Jesus does after that is he goes to the cross to make a way for that to be true, for us to be a part of that, for us to be loved by God in that way. Do you believe in God? Uh, here's just some of the concern I have in my heart in this moment um, is that you, if you've been a Christian for some time, that you could affirm a definition of God like he's one being eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who eternally loves and knows one another. And you hear that and you're like, yeah, I do. I do believe that. I agree with that. I would check that on the piece of paper. My question is, do you believe in this God in a way that belief in that God shapes all of your life. That when you think about God, you think of the God who was eternally Father-loving Son and Spirit, and Spirit-loving Father and Son, and Son-loving Father and Spirit always has been, is, and always will be. Let me ask three pointed questions, and then we'll pray. Do you believe in God, the Christian God, just in your normal days? When you woke up this morning, did you wake up believing in that God? When you're in the middle of your day tomorrow, are you going to be in the middle of your day tomorrow believing in the triune God, eternally loving? You remember we were in Ecclesiastes? I hope so, because it was like two weeks ago. Um, and we said that life is a gift. Uh, life is not a problem to solve, and life is not a competition to win, and life is not a right that I've earned, but life is a gift. You know what? Believing that God is triune, knowing that he's a trinity, that he is a triune God of love, helps us remember, is who gives that gift. It's a life-giving God who gives the gift of life. Reeves again says it like this, for if before all things God was eternally a father, then this God is an inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create from eternity. He has been life-giving. Do you believe in this life-giving God when you wake 
when you're in the normal middle part of your day at work or at home, when you open your hands and say life is a gift, another thing you're doing, another thing you're saying is, God, I believe in you. I believe that you exist. And I believe that what is true about you, what was true about you before I ever took a breath is that you are a life-giving God of love. What's going to be true about you long after I'm gone is that you are a life-giving God of love. And so when I open my hands, I receive this life as a gift from an inherently, eternally life-giving God. Do you believe in that God? Do you believe in God when you sin, Christian? Do you believe in the God of triune love when you fail, when you sin, when you sin in a way that you've never sinned before, when you sin in a way that you keep promising you won't ever sin again? And here's how you know if you believe in God when you sin. Do you run from him or do you run to him? If you believe in a God that's eternally needy, when you sin, you'll run from him because you're not meeting his needs. You're not holding up your end of the bargain. If you believe in a God that's eternally angry, you'll run from him from your sin because you're trying to avoid his wrath and cruelty. But if you believe in God, the eternally triune, eternally loving God, you move towards him when you sin. You move towards him in confession and honesty and repentance and brokenness and confidence that he who is eternally loving can always love you, especially in those moments when you find yourself most unlovable. That's when God's love is most on display for us. Did you know the entire Trinity worked to secure your salvation? If you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, the entire Trinity was at work securing your salvation, forgiving your sins, welcoming you into God's big, redemptive, forgiven family. I think sometimes we think that maybe the Father was angry and the Son was loving, and on the cross, the Son's love kind of overcomes the Father's anger, and it's just not true. There's no emotional divide in God like that. When the Father is righteously angry, the Son and Spirit are righteously angry. When the Son is loving, it's the God, the Trinity's love that's on display. And if Ephesians 1 says this, it was the Father, Son, and Spirit all at work to save you. Paul opens Ephesians with this beautiful prayer, and he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does the Father do? He blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him, Jesus, God the Son, we have redemption. Well, what does the Son do? He forgives us our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Well, what does the Holy Spirit do? Is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Did you hear it? The triune God saved you. The Father chose you before you ever took a breath. He made plans to adopt you into his family that you might be made right with God. The Son shed his blood for you to grant you forgiveness and to fill your soul with the riches of God's grace. The Spirit seals you, guarantees an inheritance of life and love and mercy and grace and enjoyment of God forever and ever. Amen. Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons filled with love looked at you at your very worst and said, let's share this love with them. Let's share this with them. And the Father blesses and the Son sacrifices and the Spirit seals you. Why? Not because God is needy, not because God is angry, but because he is, he was, and he always will be loving. When you sin, run to him. If you believe in this God, when you fail, run towards him. You know what God thinks about when he thinks about you? Because you are in Christ, he's not frustrated, disappointed, disgusted, apathetic. When he thinks about you, he thinks of one who's blessed by the Father, forgiven through the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. He sees you and he says, they are mine. 
And the same triune God who worked for your salvation is the same triune God who's working for your sanctification. He will make you who you were always meant to be and has grace upon grace upon grace for you. Do you believe in that God? Do you believe in God when you suffer? I don't know the why behind all the pain that we experience. I really don't. This world is deeply broken, and that brokenness has been on display in the most heartbreaking ways the last few weeks. It's been on display in the most heartbreaking ways the last few years. It's been on display in the most heartbreaking ways ever since Genesis 3. And I know that there are many that are hurting and grieving in so many ways. When you suffer, do you believe in God? Do you believe in the triune God of love? It's so easy to believe the lie that suffering is God's punishment, that his anger when we suffer is muting his love. It's easy to believe that God's not paying attention, that his apathy when we suffer is muting his love. And look, I don't know all there is to know about how God can be loving and allow suffering at the same time. But I do know this, friends. For Jesus, for God, loving us meant suffering for us, meeting us, saving us, reconciling us. His love is most clearly on display as he suffers in our place. And he suffered for us to move closer to us. And so maybe believing in this God in suffering is not as much expecting him to give us answers for the suffering, but believing that he is close to us in the suffering. Remember, of all the other gods, only one God has wounds, and it alone is the Christian God who is wounded for our transgressions. And when we suffer, we know that he knows what it's like and is near us and is with us. And I do know this. Before anything came to be, it was God and his love. And one day, all that will be is God and his love and his people. It means his love will win out. Suffering won't last forever. All will be made right by this triune God of love. Do you believe in that God? Would you pray with me? As we consider this together, I can't control this. Not smart enough or gifted enough to drive this home in your heart. But I wonder if you would take seriously the question this morning. Do you believe in God? Not the one that we fashion after ourselves. Not the one that it costs nothing to believe in. Do you believe in the Christian God? Do you believe in the God who before there was a world and before there were trees and before there was suffering and before there was family and before there was church? Do you believe in the God that was Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect, harmonious peace and love for one another? And do you believe the glorious truth that that God knows you? and sees you and has made a way for that love to not just be something you hear about, but something that's true for you, that fills your life and your heart and through Jesus and the salvation that was worked on your behalf by Father, Son, and Spirit, that you would be welcomed in in some mysterious way to the love that has always been. Do you believe that? Are you going to believe that tomorrow? in the middle of a summer Monday? Are you going to believe that this week when you sin? 
and everything in you wants to do what the first humans did and run and hide. And the triune God says, no, no, this is precisely the moment where you need to be reminded of my heart and my love. Are you going to believe that as you continue walking through a season of suffering? Believing in a God who invites us to cry out, how long, O Lord? And invites us at the same time to remember he is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Lord, we need you. We love you. We believe in you, God. If If I could just stand as a representative for Citizens Church this morning and confess out loud on behalf of my heart and the hearts of my brothers and sisters. We believe in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, This is not about us. We've been welcomed into your world. This is your show. And we are just delighted to get to peer into and be a part of your glory, your majesty, your world that was an overflow of your divine Trinitarian love. We worship you, God. We thank you, God. How marvelous and beautiful and powerful and wonderful you are. And that you know my name. And that you know every part of me and that you could name everyone in the room and you know everything about them and somehow some way you look and you say come come we love you we need you we worship you amen